Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. Earlier this year, Minnesota got its first chief equity officer. Stephanie Barrage was appointed in March to this new role in state government. She is advising Governor Tim Walz and his administration on addressing racial disparities and issues that concern communities of color across Minnesota. Good morning, Stephanie. So thank you so much for joining me here in the studio today. Thank you. Good morning. Nice to see you. Now, in a few moments, I will talk with Stephanie about what she's been hearing from Minnesotans in a series of listening sessions across the whole state with people who have often been left out of the conversation. And we'll hear how she sees newly passed legislation advancing equity and inclusion. I want you to know later in the hour, we'll be talking with Priscilla Stallings, the chief inclusion officer for the state of Minnesota. She works to diversify the state workforce so it reflects all the people who call Minnesota home. And as I talk with my guests today, I'm taking your phone calls. I want to hear from you, too. What questions do you have for our guests? What do you think the state should be doing to advance equity? And where could our public programs and laws do better? Call us at 651-227-6000. Again, the phone number is 651-227-6000. Or you can call 800 800- 242-2828. First, let me tell you more about Stephanie Barrage. As I said, she is Minnesota's chief equity officer, a new position in state government created just this spring to oversee the Office of Equity, Opportunity, and Accessibility housed in the office of Governor Tim Walz. She was previously a deputy commissioner in the Minnesota Department of Education interim superintendent at Robbinsdale Area Schools, a school superintendent in Michigan, and a principal as well as a classroom teacher in Minneapolis Public Schools. Dr. Baraj has a doctorate degree in education policy and administration from the University of Minnesota. <sighs> Gotta take a deep breath. <laughs> So I think a lot of people, when they read about you, hear about you, Stephanie, they recognize that you've worked in education for most of your career. So what made you want to step into this new role in the governor's office? And I get this question all the time. Uh, I believe as an educator that uh, it is our job to make sure that we serve all. We serve all of the students that show up in our schools and also to serve our parents. Well, that also transforms to state government as well. It is our job to serve all all people across the state, all Minnesotans, and to make sure that their needs are being met, that they are being heard, and they actually have a seat at the table. That's where I think um, it, it can be a challenge sometimes for Minnesotans when they have great ideals or they want to share the things that will make their lives better in the state. And sometimes they don't feel like they have a pathway to do that. So this position allows people to have that pathway and it allows them to say, here's a concern or issues that I have or something that I need solved. Help me get to the right place. And that is my job. I help to bring people to the seat, to the table. I help to make a seat for people at the table of government. And so how do you go about accomplishing this? I, I know that uh, the, the new position uh, of chief equity officer, it grew out of a series of community meetings that you led when you were there in the uh, Department of Education, when you were the deputy commissioner. Uh, and if we back up a bit, um, I, I want to hear about how those meetings came about. So they came about, I've actually been doing this process of mind, body and soul 
pretty much my entire career. Because when you work in schools, you mm-hmm. want to hear from people. And there are multiple ways that people can engage. But there's multiple ways that people feel comfortable in engaging. And so a lot of times I would have small groups um, that represented a population to say, please come talk with me. Or please come talk to the board members around what your issues um, will be or what things that you love that you want to see continued. So I actually went to the governor and lieutenant governor and said, I think we can do the same um, thing, call it mind, body and soul, where you actually come into the room as a listener. Let the community share with you what they need. And we'll have a series of questions. Um, We'll have each commissioner come in um, and talk about what they're doing in their area. And then we will go into breakout rooms, breakout sessions of probably groups of 15 um, 15 groups mm-hmm. and then say we give them questions do you like this does this make sense does it meet your needs and you're going to go into each of the rooms and listen to what the community members are saying and he Tim Governor Tim Waltz said I'm in and he did and and Lieutenant Governor Flanagan came to those sessions so what did you hear from people uh, oh. in these mind body and soul meetings what concerns did people raise they talked about what they wanted in housing what they needed in health care what they wanted to see in education they talked about um funding that they needed to see in different programs, or it may be a challenge to access government. And here would be an easier way for them to do this, how to work in communities, because let's be honest, every community is so unique and they have different needs. So we had sessions ranging from April to actually March around the things that Minnesotans needed. And a lot of the what was what was passed was based on we heard the conversations we heard what Minnesotans wanted and we saw it in legislation and policy that was passed this year. Let's talk about one accomplishment that I know you're very proud of, um, a specific recommendation that came from the mind, body and soul meetings and made it into the governor's budget and then it resulted in a new policy, universal lunch. Oh. For for school children. So explain what that is. Clear. Family said we need uh, help. This should not be an issue where we're having to um, pay for um, meals. And not that people don't mind paying for meals because they have. But when families cannot pay for meals, then that means that the general fund budget of a school district has to cover those unpaid meals. And so this not only helps the school districts, this helps families. So now families will be able to attend school and not have to worry about that cost. And then the districts will not have to make up that cost, which actually could mean the loss of a teacher or the loss of three teachers or maybe staff. So it that was a win. People were very happy about that win. So as you look at that, how does that advance equity across the state. Why is that a huge accomplishment? Equal playing field. It really does advance equity because if I'm able to pay for lunch and I have families that are unable to pay for lunch, um, those students sometimes sit in spaces where they know that. Um, They have to walk up and and have a separate ticket or their classmates have to hear that you don't, Mm -hmm. your, your parents may not have been able to pay for lunch. And so now what does this mean for you? And then that takes time. Other students will know this. This levels the playing field where everyone is able to walk to the lunch lady or lunch person and get their lunch. Mm. So a big part of your uh, job is listening. And it sounds Mm -hmm. like maybe teaching other people to listen (laughs) as well. I I appreciate that. Uh, But it sounds like another part of your job, too, is explaining uh, to to all of us what state government is doing and trying to connect people to resources. So do you find that that many people really just don't know what kinds of programs are are already out there available to uh, support Minnesotans. That's true. And that's what happened in the mind, body and souls. And I realized that when I started working at um, 
MDE as the deputy commissioner of education, I realized that we as we're moving through this legislative process, community members were not aware of the timing of when conversations needed to take place or things that were being passed. So my next Mind, Body and Soul that's coming up in August is going to go through all of the one Minnesota budget items. And I'll call them the um legislative wins so that people can hear, here is what happens. Do you know about universal meals? As excited as I am about that, um, I've talked to families who said, I didn't even realize that passed. That, that changes. That happened. changes. So where is this next meeting happening? What so part of the state? They're virtual. And so what, oh. I, so what I do is all of the mind, body, and souls are virtual. Um, that way we can get more people across the state. In the mind, mm. body, and soul, I have 800 plus now Um people that are connected. And it really is more than that because they represent groups. And so I, someone may represent a group of a thousand or 1500 and they take that information back. And so um, what I'm doing is to make sure that I'm getting to all parts of the state in my listening tour, um, which will go now until December, I am making my way to greater Minnesota everywhere so that every corner um, is touched so that I can hear from people. We're talking with Stephanie Barrage, Minnesota's chief equity officer, a new position in state government created just this spring and uh, learning more about what her job entails and uh, hearing from you as well. Our phone lines are open. What questions do you have for uh, Stephanie Barrage? And, and what do you think the state should be doing to advance equity? Where could our public programs and laws do better? You can call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. Uh, I want to go back to uh, your career, your long career in education. And, and I, I'm curious about uh, Stephanie Barrage in, in her 20s. What drew you to work in education? Education, because you you've worked as a teacher and a principal in Minneapolis uh, public schools early in your career. Um, what was that like, and what did you enjoy, or what was challenging about that? Well, it's I started when I was sixteen. Uh, I was a teacher aide in migrant education during this during a summer program, and I loved it. A sixteen year old teacher's Six, aide, sixteen years old. Okay. Yes, uh, teacher's aide, and I loved it. Uh, the teacher that I had was amazing, and he said, "I'm gonna. You need to start doing lesson plans right now." So I would prepare lesson plans. I would prepare educational games, uh, and I loved it. And my my parents were educators too, so it really was mm. something that was kind of just something that was in my my blood, my DNA. In your family. In my family. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that I was going to be a teacher and I loved being a teacher. I still connect and keep up with my students um, from back when I started teaching. And it is, it's just, it's it's a calling and I've loved it. I've loved to serve my community and to take care of families and students. So what does equity look like in a classroom and a school? I shared this uh, a year, I share this all the time. So if people have heard this, it's true. When I walked into came to Minnesota and I started teaching, I had, um, this was the first time I had ever met among students. Mm -hmm. And I remember going to the students saying, you've got to help me because I need you to help me build in pieces about your culture in my lesson plans, because I think everyone should be seen. And that goes to who I've been as a person my entire life. People need to be seen and people need to be heard. So I would meet with the families and say, help me because I don't want you ever left out of seeing yourself in the educational process. And mm -hmm. so to me, that is equity, making sure that all students, regardless of where they come from, regardless of their background, their socioeconomic status, um, gender, everything, you really have to be seen and honoring who people are when they show up in the room. And so do you think that has prepared you for how you look at equity in other areas? Um, housing uh, in the workplace. You mentioned housing. That's something that's come up mm -hmm. a lot as you've talked to people around yes. the state. Um, so 
what does what does equity look like in housing to you? Huge deal. So when I think of equity in how in housing, rental support, how to help uh, people understand what is available to them. What if I'm losing my home and I need assistance to um, maybe divert that or to then help help families because that could affect a family that maybe is a family in school. And if you're having to manage the, the stress of losing a home or not knowing what programs are available to support you for first time home buyers, then you're, you're missing a piece of how we can make Minnesota better, or how we can make our state great to stabilize families and to ensure that people have access to maybe what someone else would have access to or know about programs or systems. So it really is the communication piece of ensuring that people are aware of systems and programs that are available to them to help them be the best Minnesotan that they can be. So your job within state government, how much influence do you have over trying to create more equity in workplaces? Like, what can you do about that? Oh, quite a bit. I can make sure that people are educated. I can make, in fact, I'll give you an example of it. Yesterday, I was speaking somewhere and a a, a person walked up to me and said, you know, I'm having some challenges or my, there's, my family members are having some challenges with some elder care. And so at that point, I said, oh, my goodness, this is I'm going to connect you with the right people in state government who can have a conversation with you. And and actually, if there are not programs in place to support, then this may be a space where you need to talk to your legislator to start to talk about what things need to change or what we need to adjust to make sure that other families aren't experiencing the same hardship that um, you may be experiencing. And she had said, I have a group of people. We're all experiencing the same thing. And so I definitely you've got to connect with your legislator. Do you know who your legislator is or do you know who your legislators are? And um, at that point, we're going to make sure that you are connected. We're going to make sure that you know who you need to connect to. And then we're going to bring seat at the table to make sure you can share your concerns so that we can then look at it to say, is this something that needs to move forward or is there already a program in place that can support? And what about um, I think a lot about um you know, educating people about the political process, but also getting people registered to vote. And is that something that you can somehow have an impact on getting more people to vote? Even though our state has a great reputation of leading the nation and how many people are registered to vote, we certainly could see more participation. That's your voice. If, If I'll say anything to anyone, going to the polls to vote is your voice for government. And so everyone needs to take that that time, I believe. Um, in fact, when I was a young parent, uh, I would take my kids with me so that they could see what the process looks like, so that they were aware of it. In fact, as a school superintendent, I would have my students actually uh, vote um during elections in a, we had them in classrooms vote and go through the process because I think that is something that it is, that's our right as a, as a citizen. And so everyone has that right to do it. We should always exercise our right to vote. Uh, we're getting some phone calls from listeners who have some questions. We're talking with Stephanie Barrage, Minnesota's chief equity officer, a new position in state government created just this past spring. Uh, if you have a question, if you want to talk to uh, Dr. Barrage, call us at 651-227-6000 or you can call 800-242-2828. Let's go to Woodbury and talk to Suzanne, who's on the phone. Good morning, Suzanne. What did you want to ask or share? Oh, good morning. I have the station playing in the background. Is it going to cause some... Oh, yeah. If you could turn that down, I think that's uh, it's helpful if you could Sorry turn it down. That. Okay. Okay. Let me, let me do that now. Sorry. Um, yeah. So my question... Okay. It has to do with, it's something that actually affects everybody. Um, but so with that said, 
it is then also affecting people of color. It's something that has immensely affected my life when I least expected it. I've been someone that is educated and worked my whole life. I mean, starting out in high school and before and working two jobs and um, found myself in a situation where I needed to rely on my company, government entity, to provide me support um, at, at a very diff- difficult time in my life. And um, I, I first was given some help, but then they, they left me to the insurance company that at the worst time in my life really um, made the situation per- just added immense stress to what was already a very difficult situation. So Suzanne, what's and your what's your question about is it about insurance? The, the um so what ended up happening was this this government in, entity um does not go along with ERISA. And so if you were in a situation you're a government employee, you're not you can't get reimbursed for your um attorney's fees. Therefore, you're not able to grieve or to um, air your grievance in a court because the money that you would probably get to as um, a settlement would be lost in attorney's fees. Is okay. one so thing. Suzanne, I'm asking again, all, what's, what is your it, question? Um, it all has to do with insurance companies. Okay. We need to regulate insurance companies. Okay. And I know that if this is something that's happening to regular people, mm-hmm. I know that this is happening to people of color. Thank you. That's uh, Suzanne and Woodbury. Sounds like a question about what is uh, state government doing to to regulate insurance companies or anything you can add or, or share with Suzanne about that? Um, I think like she said, I think that was more of a statement of mm-hmm. um, what was happening to her based on her, the government or the co- the company that she worked for and how they managed that. And so that always comes down to contracts, what's in um, contracts in companies or and I would say in schools, that would be like our um, union groups and what is negotiated. So I think that would just always be aware and then share with your legislators or share with the um, people concerns that things that they may need to look at in the future. Another phone call, this one from Southern Minnesota. This is Taryn on the line. Good morning, Taryn. What do you want to ask or share? Good morning. Thank you for this important conversation to both of you, Angela Davis and to Stephanie Barrage. I appreciate this. Um, I'm a a white teacher in southern Minnesota, rural. I come from Michigan, actually, um, in a metro area. And I think uh, this this new position is so important of an equity officer for the state. I'm wondering, I, I feel like there are differences in rural, like I'm so glad you're doing a listen, listening tour in, in you said specifically trying to get out to greater Minnesota. I'm wondering as a, a teacher in an area that is diverse, that has um, Karen people, South Sudanese people, Hispanic community, how to advocate for systemic change in making sure, you talked about people needing to be seen and heard, mm-hmm. how to advocate to make sure our teaching force represents the students that we are teaching. I, I feel like there's a narrative that, okay, we need more to encourage more people of color to go into the teaching profession. We do have those people in our communities, but how do you make the system acknowledge that or mm-hmm. or look at that as a, um, a benefit? Thank you. That's Taryn in Southern Minnesota. Um, Stephanie, you've talked about trying to make sure people, everyone, seen and heard. How do you actually do that? 
So I'm glad you asked that because I come from rural America. <laughs> mm-hmm. I grew up um, in a small town. I had 35 uh, classmates, 35 students in my graduating class. So in Michigan. In Michigan. I am I am rural. I grew up that way. And so I always have a lens of what that looks like. And so that is that can be a challenge when you're in smaller communities, because many times um, you're trying to get people to stay in the community. Now, I can share with you what I did back when I was probably about 15 to 20, 15 years ago, um, is that we would use technology because we might not we may not always be able to get teachers to come live in our area, but we could use um like we're doing right now, I could get a teacher in another um, area and then have them interface with the students through Mm -hmm. um, like the online learning that we're doing Mm -hmm. right now. Um, You have to be very creative, but you also have to have, I think it's a three-tiered approach. You have to make sure that you are recruiting and trying to get, um, trying to get teachers that look like your student population to, to be educators. And if you can't find teachers, then you have to find other staff. Um, you have to continually have conversations to make sure that we're being inclusive to all because it can be a challenge um, for, in fact, in our profession of teaching, typically within the first five years, and this is across the board, um, teachers a lot of times do not stay in the profession at past five years. And so actually making sure that you have staff of color that are in schools, that becomes important too. So I'm going to say how to show up. You have to, and I believe in this, put things in print. So when there are, there are things that you need to discuss, this is where you work with your union groups and this is where you work with other groups. And I say groups, it could be your grade level band to say, here are the things that we need, but putting them in print so that there is a, I, I'm going to say a paper trail to mm-hmm. make sure that things don't get lost. So that year after year, you're saying, here's what we were able to accomplish. Here's what we really worked on this year and then go keep the list moving. So it's always a moving list to ensure that you're meeting the needs and getting st- staff and getting the items that are, need to be heard and managed uh, move forward. Also working with your board of educations when you're talking about schools, there are listening sessions either monthly in a school system or at every board meeting, having time at the listening sessions to share with the board of ed and the superintendent. Here are the things that are important to us. And then you can work with your superintendent to say, we'd like to have community groups where we can just talk. We want to come share our our ideas so that there again, this list continues. And now you have something that is a document in the strategic plan. I mean, many times that happens, but in smaller districts, they may do it for a longer period of time. But you have to have your voice at the table. Um, I want to go back to growing up in a rural area growing up. Uh, I grew up in a rural area. I often mention I grew up on a tobacco farm, oh. my grandparents tobacco farm in Southern Virginia, you grew up on your um, or you spent a lot of time on your grandparents um, farm, they had a blueberry farm, blueberry farm, I, I've learned recently. <laughs> and what is the story uh, behind that? And how did that, you know, um, you know, influence who, who you are today, spending your summers, I'm imagining, huge, on that farm. Inf- huge influence. Uh, my grandmother is in the history books. She was a union leader and organizer. And so she um, was in the Chicago area, my grandmother and grandfather, and they bought this the land in um, Covert, Michigan, and they had this farm. And so if you were um, their children and their children's children, and it keeps going on and on, uh, work the farm. And when you grow up on a farm, you live very differently or you work. Mm-hmm. It just you have a different work work ethic. And so blueberries um, were the family, um, the work. And so at eight years of age, my father would say, you can pick a pail or two and then you can play the rest of the day. <laughs> but then as you get older, that becomes the that becomes your job. And so I, I now still go to the grocery store and look to see where the blueberries come from. 
typically they'll come from a place called South Haven Covert um, in that area because of the Fruit Belt area mm-hmm. um, in Michigan. But it does shape who you are, and that's really the equity piece of that I that I come from is that you have to make sure that you take care of all. You have to be a voice for people, and I I feel that um, when people are able to stand up and be a voice for the voiceless, um, that's our job to do, and that we need to do that. The Blueberry Farm story. This explains a lot about uh, your personality (laughs) and your work ethic, I believe. Uh, Thank you for your time. We're going to let you go. We've been talking with Stephanie Barrage, Minnesota's chief equity officer, a new position in state government created just uh, this spring to oversee the Office of Equity, Opportunity and Accessibility. You renamed that, that, right? Yes, yes, because the um, disability community contacted me and said, we need to be seen. We need to make sure that we are in this title. And so that's why I always tell people this is about more than it, it, it touches all Minnesotans. And so we wanted to honor that because it is we needed to have accessibility because we wanted it to we want to make sure that people have the opportunity to be heard and seen and that it that it's accessible. And so I have a daughter who's a diabetic. And as I shared, when I had the meeting with them, I said, you're talking to someone who understands about how to make sure you have to advocate for people um, a lot of times when everyone does not always want to honor someone's disability. Thank you, Dr. Barrage, for your time. I'll let you get back to work. My guest for the remainder of the hour is Priscilla Stallings, Minnesota's Chief Inclusion Officer. Now, she leads the Office of Inclusion, which is housed at Minnesota Management and Budget. Now, that is the state agency responsible for managing state finances, payroll, and human resources. Good morning to you, Priscilla. I'm glad you could join us. Good morning, and thank you for having me. So you, I, I think you just heard the conversation we had with Stephanie Barrage, uh, the Chief Equity Officer for the state. How do you describe how your role is different from hers? Yes, I would say as the Chief Inclusion Officer, I'm leading um, the Office of Inclusion in developing and advancing strategies to advance and integrate diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion into all aspects of state government with respect to our organization of over 35,000 employees. So the workforce, the employees, this is this is internal. You're looking at state Absolutely. government workers, okay, inside um, the, the institution. So there are about, I think I read 35,000 people who work yes. for the state of Minnesota, 35,000 people. Uh, so tell us about the, the racial makeup of state workers. What, what do we know? Um, so currently it is about 80% uh, white and then 20% uh, black, Indigenous, Asian, and Latino, Latina. And so does that match up with what we see with the state's population? Or or what do you think about those percentages? So it uh, according to the 2020 census, uh, the makeup was about 77% uh, white in the state of Minnesota as a whole, and then 23% non-white. And so, um, yeah, I, what I'm thinking about that is that we still have room uh, to diversify the workforce, um, because even with the percentages that I gave for uh, the organization as a whole, that does vary by agency. Mm-hmm. So what is the purpose and value um, of having someone at your level in state government focused um, on hiring and promoting people of color? And I know this is a role that you just stepped into in November, but how do you describe how this role is necessary? Yes, absolutely. Um, It is necessary because um, there are 24 uh, cabinet agencies across uh, 
the organization, um, the state of Minnesota. Um, and I'm speaking to agencies like Department of Human Services or Minnesota Department of Education. Um, and so each agency has equity practitioners, um, some that have one role, some that have uh, maybe you know two to 10 roles that are dedicated to pushing this work forward. Uh, the reason for a role like mine is that um, at this um level of leadership in the organization, I really am positioned to align the uh, governor and lieutenant governor's priorities um, with uh, the diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion priorities and ensure that our organization as a whole is aligned um, and moving forward uh, in the direction of the One Minnesota Goals. And so Priscilla, for people who are not familiar with this particular role, um, what's the history of the chief inclusion officer position Yes. So um, it was first uh, created under Governor Dayton. Um, and many are familiar with James Burroughs, actually, who was the first uh, uh, person in this role. Mm-hmm. Um, and then fast forward to 2019 um, under Governor Waltz. Uh, my predecessor was uh, Chris Taylor, who also um, was leading the the work of inclusion across the state. Um, and so, as you mentioned before, uh, I was appointed in Uh, November of last year. Um, And uh, the work really has evolved, I would say. So uh, there were earlier phases of this work that had an external component to it. Um, And then my predecessor both had that external and internal um, focus, as you're seeing um, Mm -hmm. with with Stephanie referenced right around the need for um, connecting with community. Um, And this is the first time with this role where uh, it is solely focused on the internal organization. And so, and you're coming in post-pandemic. The world has changed so much since uh, the previous two uh, folks were in those positions. And so um, I, I want to know more about uh, your background. Like, where did, where did you grow up? And, and how did those, uh, you know, those, those childhood experiences, you think, or young adult experiences, get you interested in working in diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yes. Um, so I was born in St. Paul and raised in the Rondo and Frogtown communities. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say uh, my childhood absolutely has impacted this journey. Um, both my parents were transplants to the Twin Cities. My mom is from uh, rural Minnesota, Chisholm specifically, and my father is from Brooklyn, New York. And so my earliest experience experiences were in um uh, family dealing with family dynamics that were so uh, so different. <laughs> rural, um, <laughs> rural Minnesota meets Brooklyn. Exactly. <laughs> and so um, that coupled with um, growing up in in uh, Rondo, which was a uh, black, historically black community, mm-hmm. but also my educational experience, which was very multicultural, um, really. I think positioned me to understand uh, cult- different cultures deeply um, and to really understand difference um, and those similarities with cultures as well and being able to bridge across difference. Um, so, and then mm-hmm. speaking to my professional uh, career. So um, I went on to study uh, sociology, law and criminology at the university of Minnesota mm-hmm. and found my way to the Ramsey County attorney's office where I was, focused on um, uh, work within the child support system. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was really there that 
I realized the glaring misalignment between employees, uh, which were predominantly white women, and the diverse community uh, within Ramsey County, which included Black, Latino, Asian, Indigenous, among many other communities. Um, so it was there that I committed myself really to examining processes and uplifting community experiences, um, and then found myself going back to school uh, to study the role of government leaders um, in change centered in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, I want to hear more about your time working um, uh, in Ramsey County and working uh, in child support. Um, So did you find that many of the folks in leadership position there um, who you mentioned were were white women, that there was a disconnect that that they um, often were challenged by maybe understanding some of the needs of the, the maybe the black and brown families they were working with? Absolutely. So I would say um, with employees that were actually serving community, absolutely. Um, And I also think that came through in in a lot of the policies that were being enforced. Um, But then I would say from an employee perspective as well, right, there was um, really a push that I was behind as well to help diversify that workforce as well. Um, And so there was a lot of work centered in um, supporting leaders um, in uh, their own cultural development, um, and not specifically uh, even just to child support, but working with all leaders across the uh, county attorney's office um, so that we really were positioned to better serve community. So during your time working at, at, in Ramsey County, did you see eventually some changes at, that happened, uh, changes in who was hired or other changes that ended up improving county services um, for racially diverse communities? Um, absolutely. So um Change related to diversity, equity, inclusion really has to happen on an individual structural and systemic level. And I will say that there were pockets of success at all levels. Um, There were pockets of uh, employees who had worked for many, many years without promotional opportunities that were um, getting access to promotional opportunities, which was just so exciting to see. Um, and then also through leadership coaching and feedback, just really seeing um, several leaders take on and own the fact that diversity, equity, and inclusion is not the sole responsibility of equity practitioners, um, but really is the responsibility of all leaders within the organization. So right now we're talking with Priscilla Stallings, Minnesota's chief inclusion officer. She leads the Office of Inclusion, which is housed uh, inside of Minnesota Management and Budget. And that is the state agency that's responsible for managing the state's finances, payroll and human resources. Earlier, we were talking with Stephanie Baraj, the chief equity officer for the state. Two women who are uh, charged with trying to create a more equitable, inclusive Minnesota. And I want to hear from you. Do you have questions about uh, these roles? Uh, Questions for our guests. Give us a call at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. What do you think our state should be doing to advance equity? Let's take a phone call, uh, Priscilla, from St. Paul, where Kate is on the phone. Good morning, Kate. What's on your mind? Good morning. Thank you so much uh, for having these guests on and for the work that you do every every day. Um, I Yeah, I, and I'm a former state employee, and worked there for decades and um, I'm white and I really saw that, you know, we were trying very hard to be able to understand um, the folks in the community that, that we were actually working for, but we had limited understanding. We regulated electric and natural gas utilities. And when we would try to think about, okay, programs that can be rolled out to help people conserve electricity, natural gas, and so forth, 
we really had limited information um, and we needed to have perspective from people who were not white. Um, and, and when I would go to try to hire people, um, <clears throat> you know, I would ask, like, what kind of relationships do we have? We, you know, where can we advertise? And there really had not been a relationship that was built up with various communities of color. So we, you know, why would anybody <laughs> look at an advertisement for us? We didn't have that relationship. So I, I think it is essential to have these positions because the, the folks who are working in state government really should reflect um, the people that, that are, are benefiting and are paying for um, state employees. And similarly with the um, electric and natural gas utilities, they were trying very hard to be able to recruit more employees who look like the people they served. And they similarly ran into, um, you know, roadblocks, kind of like, oh, how do we do this? How do we connect with people? How do we tell them about these jobs? So there is just hmm. so much work that needs to be done, and I'm grateful to see that it's happening. So, okay, as a state employee yourself, you, you, you saw it, that there was a disconnect and there was a need to, to um, you know, create, uh, I guess, have more people in decision-making roles who can naturally address the needs of the community. Absolutely. Right. All right. That's Kate. There, there was there was an important perspective that was missing there, missing. and and we mm-hmm. really need it. And if you don't see it, you don't know what you're not seeing. Mm-hmm. But it's there. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Thank you. That's Kate in St. Paul. Priscilla, what do you think about what she just shared? I think it's spot on. And I, um, you know, with regards to this role and the value of this role, it really is um, again aligning and bringing folks to the table um, internally, so that. Um, the decision-making processes, the policies, right? Um, The approach to um, engaging with community um, is done through an equity lens. So again, Priscilla, a big part of your job is is overseeing some of the hiring practices, what's going on in human resources. And I have heard from people, I I got an email this morning uh, to please ask uh, your guests about, um, you know, some of the barriers uh, to hiring more people of color in state government. A lot of people have shared with me that the great frustration, um, even sharing that the online process of applying for a job uh, is difficult, applying for a job within state government, Um, and that often the effort in interviews, it it doesn't seem sincere, uh, that, you know, that there really is an effort to hire, you know, different types of people. And so what can you share about that? Like, how do you uh, address those concerns and, and experiences that people say that they've had in the past? Yeah, so I think those experiences are spot on. Um, In state government, the current system that we use um, does have limitations to it. And so that is part of uh, what my office is uh, working to uh, ask questions around to see what are the options uh, for streamlining that process, right, and uh, creating more access and less barriers in the actual application process. And then when you're speaking to the actual interview process, um, there is opportunity uh, to develop uh, training panels uh, so that they are equipped and are able to mitigate bias in that process um, and create spaces, right, that really allow candidates to shine. Um, And then lastly, uh, through recruiting efforts, right, uh, moving beyond uh, a place of um, uh, allowing candidates to just come to the state website uh, to more of a space of utilizing other platforms. So one example would be moving into utilizing LinkedIn to actually share these opportunities out. Um, And then having recruiters who are reaching out to folks uh, via LinkedIn as well. And that's one of many uh, strategies that are 
yeah, you, have to, about. you have to get the word out. It, ha- it, yes. it can't be the same old way we've done it. And and so do you are you thinking of some new ideas and ways to make sure people know about the opportunities that exist to work in state government? Uh, Yes. So uh, we do have an employee experience team that has recruiters that are absolutely working on exactly that. All right. Let's take uh, another phone call. And uh, Duluth, Jamie is on the phone. Jamie, thank you for calling in. Thanks for waiting. What did you want to share or ask as we talk about uh, equity in Minnesota? Hey, thanks so much for having me. Um, So I'm up in Duluth right now. We've been doing a lot of equity work over the last few years. And most recently, our community dropped a pretty groundbreaking federal lawsuit against our police department, the city of Duluth, and notably for this conversation, um, the current and past human rights officers of the city, um, kind of similar to the role of like an equity officer. Um, Long story short, we have family in Duluth who had the police come to their house over a hundred times in 10 years because of a racist neighbor making crazy 911 calls ranging from, you know, mess lab, this guy's beating up his kids, this guy's stealing her roofing tiles off the roof. The police kept coming the whole time. The police chiefs knew about it. And ultimately, these equity officers knew about it. And they met with the family and they did nothing. And ultimately, you know, it's at least from being up here in Duluth, it's obvious through the political kind of landscape that if this guy, Carl Crawford, the current equity officer, And the previous one, if they would have done something about it, they probably would have gotten fired. Um, You know, and I think that speaks through throughout the state. You know, the Minnesota DFL, they're not really going to hold, you know, major entities, police officers. You see what Jacob Fry in the cities, Governor Walls, police institutions accountable. So I guess what I'm just trying to say is, particularly with the civil rights laws that exist and Free Housing Act and these major things, it makes me really worried for people like your guests who are in these positions where they're liable to address these issues, but like, are they able to in their roles? So serving under your question. So I guess my, my, my question is just how do you make sure that these positions have teeth and have independence Mm -hmm. to actually enact change? And also how do we make sure that they're protected? So that way, if, and when they do the right thing, they are able to keep their jobs and keep doing it. All right. That's uh, Jamie in Duluth. And uh, Priscilla, again, you're the chief inclusion officer. You started in November. And what are your thoughts about, um, you know, how much power do do you really have? (laughs) That's an excellent question. Um, (laughs) I would say, um, you know, the reality is uh, these roles are really set up and structured in a way that we influence. Right. We lead up, down, sideways um, and above. Mm. Um, And we are in, uh, again, the positions of influencing. Um, I am committed to uh, speaking truth to power and to championing on behalf of uh, marginalized communities. And so, and that, and to the point of the caller, um, that does take courage, right, um, to do so. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll leave it with, with that, that it does take courage to be in these roles and to speak about things that are, uh, you know, against uh status quo at times. But I will say uh, my experience working at the state since November has been absolute support, um, both within the agency that I work in from the governor's office. So, uh, yeah. So uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, training and and working with with hiring managers. And, you know, in my experience, sometimes people hiring for an open position will say, well, you know, we just didn't get a very diverse pool of applicants. Uh, What are some of, of 
some some con- concrete things a state agency or any workplace can do, um, Priscilla, to, to, to get the word out and so that you do end up getting a diverse group of people applying for a job? Yes. Uh, so I would say utilizing uh, platforms. So, um, and there are costs associated with, with that, right? Um, but takes time and money. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and so, but investing in that and ensuring that you're getting the word out, um, investing in recruiters uh, that can go out in community, right? Either to job fairs or um, uh, to community spaces and be in community and actually be sharing this, uh, the job opportunities uh, widely. And I understand you're also looking at who gets promoted in a job um, within the state, a state government job, who gets promoted. And and how do you describe how the state is doing to make sure promotions are equitable? Yes. Yeah, so we are absolutely looking at um, talent pipelines um, and implementing ways for leaders to uh, set up what's called an intercultural um, development, not intercultural, excuse me. Uh, It is a individual development plan with employees um, so that leaders are talking with their employees about their goals and about their career path at the state. Um, So that is one uh, avenue. Also, um, just uh, increasing training and development and access to training and development. Mm -hmm. Um, So looking at what we're offering and also um, creating space for things that we might not be offering yet, right? And um, how do we allow employees access to that? Let's take another phone call uh, from a listener as we talk with Priscilla Stallings, the uh, chief inclusion officer leading uh, the Office of Inclusion and uh, overseeing uh, the hiring and promotion of state government workers. Uh, In St. Paul, we've got uh, Molly on the phone. Good morning, Molly. What do you want to ask or share? Hi, thank you. I just wanted to kind of go back to um, a little bit about the hiring process and the Mm -hmm. job postings. Mm -hmm. Um, I know from looking myself that um, it's difficult to understand, especially I would say in the government listings, but also in industries, you know, private industry, many people use in their job postings a very specific language, Mm -hmm. um, technician or specialist or level two or just specific things to the industry where if you're someone that is not familiar with that language, you Mm -hmm. have no idea what the job is. And then if you click in to look at the, you know, what this role will do, it is often much more of a stock listing and you still have no idea what this job is, what it actually will be doing, or if you're qualified or even could be qualified. Um, I think just a basic. So the job postings um, could be more clear. They're Mm -hmm. extremely unclear, extremely unclear. And I know from looking myself in, in various parts of government jobs that I, would be somewhat familiar with, I still don't understand them. Okay. Priscilla, what are your thoughts about that? Have you seen some of the way the job postings are described? Uh, it could be better, written better. Oh, absolutely. So that that comment is spot on. And um, I think that there's work to do. And that is one of mm. the priorities of the Office of Inclusion to address. And before we run out of time, Priscilla, uh, an opportunity. Are there some state jobs that are open right now that you want folks who are listening to know about? Do you have a few openings you yes, can share with us? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So there is a community engagement and partnerships specialist with the Minnesota Zoo. Uh, there's also a business manager position for the Gambling and Control Board, which directs business functions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how do people find, like, where do you send people initially to look for, like, what's the website for openings in state government? 
I do not have that off the top of my head, but um, I know if you go to the minnesota.gov.gov uh, uh, website, it will bring you there. We're also sharing these positions out on LinkedIn as well. Okay. So is it mn.gov? Absolutely. Which yes. gets you started and you'd be able to yes. find by department where the openings are. Okay. Well, thank you for your time. Uh, we've been talking uh, with Priscilla Stallings, Minnesota's chief inclusion officer. She leads the Office of Inclusion housed at Minnesota Management and Budget. And earlier we were talking with Stephanie Barrage, Minnesota's chief equity officer, a new position created in state government, created uh, just this spring to oversee the Office of Equity Opportunity accessibility as well, housed in the office of Governor Tim Walls. Today's conversation was produced by Maya Beckstrom and made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For more reporting in the North Star Journey series, just go to nprnews.org and look for the North Star Journey link. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.